Bujun and Dinoe Maganatug. Greetings, relatives. My name is Melissa Nelson, and I'm your host and gardener of the Native Seed Podcast. Welcome to the Native Seed Pod, a podcast aimed at celebrating the diversity and beauty of native seeds, soils, and indigenous foods. Greetings. Welcome to episode three, the Seed Sovereignty Sisters. My name is Sarah, and I'm the producer of the Native Seed Pod here. I wanted to share a little bit about this episode. The session was an impromptu talking circle as we grabbed a quiet corner in an urban hotel in downtown LA at this past spring's NASA conference. It was a nice opportunity to really sit down and dialogue and talk about things like biodiversity and food security and environmental justice as we really connect to cultural and environmental health through seeds. I hope you guys really enjoy this session. So here we are in downtown LA on Tongva traditional territory, and we are at the NASA conference, uh, the Native American Indigenous Studies Association annual meeting with this fabulous group of Seed Sovereignty Sisters. So if you wanna take a moment and introduce yourselves, that would be great. Thank you, Melissa. And my name is Marlena Wambachano. I, I am originally from Peru and I have indigenous heritage. And in an early age, I immigrated to New Zealand, Aotearoa, and I completed all my studies, and then I've been very grateful to have this postdoc at Brown University and been based in the States now and be able to extend those relationships with my indigenous sisters and brothers in North America, Latin America, Oceania, and build up this exciting indigenous food sovereignty network. Mm, thank you. My name is Kaylina Bray. Um, I'm from the Seneca Nation, from the Cataragas. Um, my name is Wasentat in Seneca, uh, which means mm, the shaking of a rattle or movement of a rhythm that happens when you shake a rattle. A seed um, rattle. <laughs> a seed rattle. <laughs> um, and I um, am, have just completed my master's at Oxford and now living in Mexico City. And working on developing uh, maize corn networks throughout the Americas, um, in addition to working with small-scale farmers in Mexico on agave production. Cool. And I'm Elizabeth Hoover. I'm of Mohawk and Mi'kmaq ancestry, and I'm an assistant professor of American studies at Brown University, where I teach courses on environmental justice and food sovereignty movements and ethnic studies and American Indian studies. And I just finished a book um, called The River is in Us, Fighting Toxics in a Mohawk Community that's about the community of Akwesasne and their responses to environmental health research there and changing food systems. And I'm working on another book now called From Garden Warriors to Good Seeds, Indigenizing the Local Food Movement that is based on interviews with 40 different uh, native community organizations that are working on farming and gardening and seed saving. Wonderful, and um, so it sounds like you do a lot of applied work, all of you, and yet you're also scholars writing books and uh, doing original research. And here we are at a Native American Indigenous Studies Conference. Uh, What was the idea behind presenting seed sovereignty stories within this academic context? 
For many years, when we were looking at the program for the NASA conference, there was not any presentations that dealt with food systems or food sovereignty. And we started having little side meetings of people that were interested in this topic and thinking about how do we bring some of these more applied types of work and applied stories and specifically around food sovereignty. And so last year, we had the good fortune of presenting together on a panel about food sovereignty at the NASA conference in Vancouver. And then in Hawaii as well, right? I think, I think yeah, we've had a, a trend um, of presenting together a good group of us. And so this year, there's another panel also presenting on food sovereignty. And so we decided to pick a very kind of specific angle of food sovereignty and look at seed sovereignty in particular and how seeds are fitting into this broader food sovereignty movement, both in North America, um, domestic seeds as well as wild seeds, and then Marielena's work in Latin America and in New Zealand. Networks are, are a good theme here that have come up over and over again across all four of your talks. Really, the, the foundation of all is this relationship, right? The relation of ourselves in, um, in space and time and place and land and, and the different expressions of those relationships and how central seeds are to that relationship and the development of those networks. So, Marielena, you're talking about those networks and crossing oceans. And, Kalina, this sounds so much like what you're doing with Braiding the Sacred. It does. Actually, just listening now, <clears throat> it's, I see a lot of parallels between how the kumara and maize and corn networks are, are persisting and unfolding. And I think there's some essential elements that I've, I've seen between uh, North and South America, which ties both to health um, and the understanding that we, as peoples who have taken care of the seed, uh, are intimately tied to it for our own well-being and our own the health of our people. So when we are doing some of these interviews, one the most common thread I'd say that I noticed was this concern about health. Like, if we have GMO mm -hmm. contamination of our seeds, what is that going to mean for our people? Mm -hmm. Similarly, in um, for our family in, in in North America, it seems like obesity. We hear a lot about the health impacts directly stemming from an introduction of non-traditional foods. And I think one interesting <clears throat> divergence I've seen is looking at the economic landscape and how that has influenced how people are adapting their seeds and their relationship to seeds because there is a difference between north the context of of the within the americas and because i think there's something important about understanding how those economic influences and local economies are playing into the way that we are preserving seeds and something that we can learn from each other um, especially there's just so many deep connections that run spiritually, and it's always around ceremony. Playing off of what Kaylina was talking about, health, that there's a real sense that if people want to reclaim physical health, that when you start eating more of these traditional foods, these traditional seeds, but then also the way that 
the health of those seeds and the, the cultural and spiritual health of people are connected. So when I was visiting um, Roberto Nut Lewis through the Black Mesa Water Coalition, was, has some crops in, in Pinon that he was working with the students, and he described corn as biological and spiritual nourishment. So there's a sense that the corn is nourishing your body, that you know has a greater deal of protein and you know, complex vitamins than other kinds of corn do, but also the, the spiritual nourishment, the cultural nourishment from learning the ceremonies that go into planting and harvesting and cooking that corn and having that relationship again with that particular kind of crop, so these networks are important for all kinds of health. Yeah, you were talking about the sweet potato and how the sweet potato became more than just a revitalization of a food crop or about food sovereignty and food connection, but also the relationships that develop and how those relationships seem to cross oceans. Yes, yeah. the kumara, it's a Maori sacred crop. It means it is a sweet potato or a camote in Spanish and it relates to the cultural traditions and cultural history. We when I went and connected with Maori communities and also through the literature, it was important to recognize that when Maori people, it's also embedded in the creation story, when Maori people traveled to Ottawa, New Zealand, they brought with them some of the main pollination crops. And because of the harsh conditions of the new environment, especially the ones that immigrated to the South Island of the country, from all those crops, only the kumara, the sweet potato, survived. And that's why it's so embedded in the cultural stories, traditions, about the meaning, the cultural history meaning of the kumara. That it's also, it's very linked to vitality and energy because the spiritual essence of Maori people and all their ancestors are highlighted and represented in the Kumara. And if we think about it, camote, sweet potato in Mesoamerica is also important. And I was fascinated to hear stories about the connection in between the Kumara and in New Zealand and the Kumara in, in Peru and how we think about us as relatives in linked and how the Kumara is a metaphor to speak about the connection, the cultural connections that exist between tribes and also about the indigenous economies, even before how they were able to trade and to be able to preserve uh, food security based on the indigenous food crops. You all kind of framed it around traditional ecological knowledge. Like, why is that important for people today? What do they need to know about traditional knowledge? And, and why are seeds so important, not just for native peoples, but for all peoples today? I think it's important to maintain all of that biodiversity. So all of the knowledge and understanding of the individual environments that goes into those seeds. So now when you go and you buy seeds from a store or from a catalog, um, those seeds are designed to grow in Maine and in Georgia and in Arizona and you just plant it at a different time of year, that's it. But it's supposed to perform pretty much the same for everybody um, and then you get this bland, nearly flavorless, you know, but as compared to some of these beautiful varieties that have been adapted specifically for different environments and for the people who have always been in those environments. And so I think it's really important, especially as the climate is getting wonky, to be able to um, 
to grow these different varieties that have been adapted to different places to trade them among different communities. So some people are talking about like, oh, we better start trading some of our seeds north as the, the climate is sort of getting warmer. How do we develop relationships with people who will treat those seeds respectively? respectively. Um, so, you know, we're not going to want to just give out seeds to anybody who will treat them any old way. And so what I think it's important for people to consider that it's not just indigenous people in North America or in Peru or in Aotearoa that had indigenous you know, heritage seeds, that whatever background you come from has heritage seeds. You know, people's grandmas brought seeds from all over Europe with them tucked in pockets and bonnets and clothes and suitcases. So how can you connect to some of those crops from you know, wherever your relatives came from and bring those back into your own diets and life as well, I think is an important thing for people to keep in mind. Kalina, you mentioned in your talk the importance of biodiversity, just as Liz is talking about. Um, almost talking about um, diversity for seeds, that, that diversity almost becomes a kind of medicine, like a first aid kit. <laughs> that diversity, you know, is your first line of defense against bacterias and pests and, you know, all of these other things that uh, in the natural world we've developed over time in order to create the sustainability and the viability of these foods and, and what it means to cultivate that and carry that relationship forward. And so I was wondering if you talk a little bit about that too, because the biodiversity really here becomes so key. Definitely. The diversity of seeds that we have is a direct indicator of our environmental health. So we have a dwindling variety of foods that we are currently eating in our food system. That is currently happening. Uh, and we can't help but notice that correlates directly to the trajectory of our environmental health, which is that we're overstepping a lot of our planetary boundaries. We see a lot of more carbon going into the atmosphere. We see these extreme weather events happening. Um, so the question now then becomes how do we utilize strategies that we know have worked, which are embodied in indigenous philosophies and thought. How do we begin to tap into those? Because those are where we're gonna find strategies and answers to some of these pressing issues. Um, and a lot of indigenous peoples hold frameworks and knowledge systems that are so divergent from where we are now in a Western framework of thinking, but we're starting to make these bridges. And I think looking at networks not only between indigenous peoples and, and places is important, but also how we are impacting non-indigenous allies or, or creating a, a space and way for that bridge to be built. Because we're gonna need all forces to to face this challenge and and to continue to subsist. The Native Seed Pod is produced by the Cultural Conservancy with generous support by Tamil Pius Trust. To contribute to our polyculture and to find out more information, please visit us at nativeseedpod.org or nativeland.org.
there's no seed sovereignty without water mm-hmm. and without soil. And so it really links together to environmental health issues uh, in all of our different communities and the fact that in North America, so many reservations have been targeted for toxic colonialism with dump sites and radioactive waste and mining. So those are going to be long-term issues of linking up ecological restoration, bioremediation, toxic cleanup with you know revitalizing um, the essence of those agricultural systems and wild food gathering systems? Well, there are 600 Superfund sites that are near Native communities, and so this is something that Indigenous communities are dealing with concerns about whether the water is clean, whether the soil is clean, so the, you know, the recent spill from the Gold King mine, and I've heard that that's impacted you know, people's comfort in planting crops and watering those crops with river water because what are you putting on your food and then do you want to then feed that food to your families if you're worried about the potential of contamination in there. Um, There's people concerned about GMO contamination so you mentioned that you know people are worried okay if we plant our corn and then the next farmer over is planting um, genetically modified corn what does that then mean if that pollen gets into our corn crops so there's kind of those levels of contamination. Um, part of you know what I'm looking at as well is the way that the food sovereignty movement and seed sovereignty movement has started to, to link up with the anti-pipeline movement. And so people thinking about how do we keep pipelines from coming through communities that are going to impact water sources or mines in the case of Wisconsin, you know, how is that going to impact wild rice if some of the um, mine tailings get into the water? And so in the case of like the Ponca in Nebraska who have been planting their corn in the proposed path of the Keystone Pipeline every year is another way of saying, look, it took us a long time to get this corn back. You're not going to run your, your pipeline through it. So there's a recognition that um, that is where the real wealth is, is not in the fossil fuels, but in these seeds that people are reclaiming and that that's what's most important to, to maintain and thinking about that in direct opposition to allowing something to come through that will contaminate the water that's necessary to grow these healthy crops. Definitely, when we talk about environmental justice, we can't disconnect the health of the environment and the health of the land, and it's something that has a huge influence on how Maori and Quechua people think about the health of those seeds, of those relatives, because it does not just impact um, about how seeds are preserved, but also the impact of their well-being. And when it comes to um, the health of the environment in the highlands, they've been trying to revitalize and heal the land. In the 80s, the government of Peru imposed this new law about we need to, you know, let, let's support they say, let's support economic development. Let's support more corporations coming to, you know, invest on food and food systems. In, so in the 80s, those communities were forced to produce non-indigenous crops. So there are two kinds now. The ones that are native um, crops and non-indigenous. And they've been forced to stop producing indigenous crops. And they, they told me, we've been very smart to say, well, okay, I'm gonna do that, but I'm gonna still um, keep a hectare of those land, healthy lands. And now it's been 30, 40 years after, they've realized that the land needs healing 
and they know that the, the land is, is not healthy and it's impacting the whole environment ecosystem and all those ecological beings. And the one the hectare that didn't have any pesticides or anything, they are the ones that keep producing. And thanks to that um, healthy land, where they're able to produce more and more different kinds of corn and potatoes, they've been able to survive. But this is an example of how they think about the health of the environment and they're connected to the health of the land, the health of the seeds, because if the seeds are healthy, then it will definitely preserve their food security. So all of your work, too, really touches on this um, wonderful new concept, old concept, new concept of repatriation or rematriation. Here in the U.S., we have the NAGPRA law, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, to repatriate um, ancestors, ancestral remains, sacred objects, funerary objects, objects of cultural patrimony. Um, and cultural matrimony. And so we are, you know, really trying to decolonize even that concept and extend the meaning of what it means to have sacred treasures returned to you. And so you've all been working on the rematriation of seeds. So I'd love to hear a conversation what, what rematriation of seeds means to each of you in some of the case studies or projects you've worked on. So I first heard about that idea and term through Rowan White, who was in your, your first podcast um, episode, and who really talks about how you know, the importance of rematriation or the recognition of women in the role of seed keeping and preserving these crops. And so it's been really interesting over the last couple of years looking at, you know, one of my degrees is in museum studies and we're taught, you know, within museum studies in how you, you curate objects and you care for objects and how do you make sure that they're going to look pristine and last forever. And so now approaching institutions who gathered up seeds as though they were objects just like baskets and canoes and headdresses and saying, okay, now we need to take these objects out of your collection, you know, because they're thought of as objects. We need to take these living beings that you're treating as objects because they're still, you know, it looks all dried up, but there's still a little living being in there just waiting, you know, Clayton talks about as a baby with its own lunchbox in there, just waiting <laughs> for you to give it the right conditions to start munching away on its stored energy. Uh, but convincing museum curators to say, okay, we're going to take these these beings out of your collection and bury them and you know, deaccession them, stick them in the dirt where they belong in order to let new life spring forward. And, and you can have some back. You can have some fresh new ones that won't be the exact one that the anthropologist dentist collected in the 30s in the case of the, the collections at the Science Museum in Minnesota. But that's been a really interesting process to watch, to have, you know, to see museum people try to reconceptualize seeds as objects that were collected, but also the importance of getting some of those seeds that um, were lost out of their communities. And not just lost, not like, oh shoot, I lost this, but essentially the conditions were robbed from communities to be able to continue to plant these seeds and preserve these varieties. And so now there's an absence, there's a loss from those seeds not being where they should be in their homes. And so um, it's been really wonderful in the case of you know the Science Museum in Minnesota and the work that Scott Shoemaker did there um, and now looking at University of Michigan and the way that people are 
um, you know, slowly working along. And you know, now that Rowan is the, the chair of the board at the Seed Savers Exchange, and here you have a giant seed bank that has gathered up you know, all of these things that people have sent in from around the world. And there's you know, a thousand different seed varieties there that are from indigenous communities that indigenous people didn't necessarily send in and say, please keep our seeds. You know, other people collected and sent in. Um, and now there will be an opportunity for some of those seeds to be grown out and sent back to eager gardeners who are, are thinking about how do you reconstitute these seed collections and get them back onto people's plates, you know, getting back to the, the health issue again. How do you, if you want people to be healthy, how do you um, get people eating these foods? You first have to grow the foods, and then this is where the role of people like Sean Sherman and, and Brian Yazzi and some of these other, you know, Carlos Bach and some of these other chefs that are working with these traditional varieties and getting people excited about cooking them. And, you know, Loretta Oden and you know, some of these other great chefs that are like, all right, how do we get people excited about it? Now that they're in the gardens, they're growing them out, how do you get people excited about eating them so they'll want to plant them every year? Because otherwise, you know, you see this in some places, they become these rarefied treasures. And it's like, okay, we've grown out these seeds and then they sit in these nice jars and I guess we should grow out some more next year and they look really pretty. But that's not as great a motivation as, wow, these are delicious and I want to eat them every day. And to do that, I need to plant this many rows. And so, yeah. yeah, just following up on that, I've, I find, I found similarly that it's really a community process that goes into this, the whole part of rematriation. The seed is one part of it, but I'd say it's connected it's connected to so many other layers of cultural identity or, or how we are understanding and rebuilding a relationship that has has always existed but because those in some cases you know the physical being of the seed is not there it's then opening up a door for conversation and discussion that opens up a lot of trauma too so I remember the first um, gathering that we had at Onondaga was is an open dialogue, but it really brought up a lot of conversation that goes extends way beyond um, to our ancestral connections. Uh, and I think it's an important conversation to have also. Um, and I think the process too, I found interesting uh, with the collection that we've been working with, uh, with Carl Barnes's collection, he, had his motivation around growing out seeds was yes to to have the seed itself available, but he was also mixing and and kind of building different strains of corn that he thought would be potentially resilient moving forward. So there's different perspectives on how we can start to con or continue to rematriate. I mean, you have the seed, but then we need to continue looking forward to how are we going to strengthen it, mm -hmm. um, and that's something. And I, I find that I, I, that's an interesting conversation too when you have like traditional knowledge and, mm -hmm. and like modern technologies and how do you have those conversations about, um, about mixing the two in a way that still holds on to the traditional like root value and is still congruent with the traditional way of doing things. But it's not always an easy conversation <laughs> with elders. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but necessary. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
biodiversity is life. Biodiversity um, is resonates with vitality, with energy, this vibrant cultural identity that you can find from the Arctic, the highlands, in Amazon. It's about the well-being of societies, and it's a tool to be able to be resilient when it comes to your food systems in order to survive global environmental challenges. Biodiversity resonates with resilience of your food systems, of culture, and because we are all interrelated. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Seed Sovereignty Sisters, for your brilliance and your commitment. And it's a seedy crew. Uh, we are in solidarity. Uh, we are in citizens of solidarity. That's not my original. I just got that from the Seedbed Conference at UC Santa Cruz. But we are citizens of solidarity. And um, your brilliance and your commitment to this field is very inspiring. And um, I know you're all writing about it, producing films about it, producing books about it. And we hope you keep in touch with our podcast community and network. Uh, we'd love some any references, obviously your own works, um, but any others that you think are critical to this conversation, uh, we'd love to include. And please keep in touch. Chimigwich. Kira Sulpaiki. Yeah. A special thank you to Elizabeth Hoover, Maria Elena Wambanchano, and Kaylina Bray. Thank you so much for joining us. To learn more about their work, please visit our website at thenativeseedpod.org. Thank you all for listening. We look forward to catching you on the next new moon. Chiokwe Utiesia. Have a wonderful night. Ashunga tia tia, ashunga mama tia, ashunga mama.